we always encourage our entrepreneurs at FYA to, think, to talk to experts about what's the systemic change around this issue that needs to happen and how can we be part of that. Hi, I'm Holly Ransom and welcome to Coffee Pods, a podcast devoted to fueling your difference. Here at Coffee Pods, we have a simple hypothesis that in the mere amount of time it takes to share a cup of coffee with someone, we can tap into a lifetime of experience. And that's exactly what we aim to do here at Coffee Pods, to give access to some incredible individuals who've marched to the beat of their own drum and who are willing to share their advice, their highs, their lows, their insights, in order to help give each and every one of us the toolkit and the inspiration to fuel the difference that we're trying to make in our own lives, communities and organisations. I'm so excited for today's Coffee Pod conversation. Our guest is Jan Owen AM, the CEO of the Foundation for Young Australians. Jan is a highly regarded social entrepreneur, innovator, influencer and author who spent the past 25 years growing Australia's youth, social enterprise and innovation sectors. In 2012, she was named Australia's inaugural Australian Financial Review and Westpac Woman of Influence. In 2014, she received a Doctor of Letters from the University of Sydney and was awarded membership to the Order of Australia in 2000. Jan's got a really interesting background. She was the CEO of the Create Foundation uh, and founded it for that matter. She was the Executive Director of Social Ventures Australia, all around increasing the impact of the Australian social sector. Only non-US citizen to receive a fellowship for leadership and innovation to the Peter Drucker Foundation. And now her work with FYA is all about unleashing the capability and impact of young Australians. It's a great conversation talking all about how is it that we drive change? What is it we need to do better in terms of approaching problem solving within the community, business, you name it. I think you'll really enjoy it and be fired up by this one. And a lot of conversation too around the future skills mix we need, what we need to be doing in the education sector. So an absolute must for people that are thinking about the future of work or where education is heading or needs to head. Here's Jan. Jan, it's such a privilege to have you on Coffee Pods. I can't thank you enough for making the time. I've been so fortunate to learn from you over so many years now and also just be inspired by the work that you're doing, the conversations that you're catalyzing and the people that you're bringing together to take a new approach to how we address problems, not just in the Australian community, but more broadly across the world. So much I want to talk to you about in this podcast, but I think that's one of the things that really fascinates me is sort of the paralysis that we seem to be stuck in of a, a lot of the same conversation um, and not the ability to move forward out of that. Like we, we've been talking and, and you, you know, you've been in this conversation longer than I have around, say, education and that systemically it's really not working. And yet you still largely see the same people pursuing the same approach to getting the same thing done. Um, and unsurprisingly, we're getting the same results, which in the ever-evolving current day reality are delivering diminishing returns and you sit there and go how is it that we actually do fundamentally start to shift the conversation and the action in a new direction yeah well and to me that means that you've got to actually change the actors Mm. so we can think of the actors and we can think of the stakeholders and we can think of the kind of 
producers. You know, I start to think of this ecosystem of what is it and who are all the people that play the roles in systems change. And there are many, and you play different roles when you're in the systems change game or the transformation game. But fundamentally, if you want to create that change, you either give people new roles, so they have to actually step into new roles which are not where their natural default is, or you change the actors. And for, you know, obviously in my work, the actors that I want to bring into the transformation and to the kind of change that needs to happen and the new design work that Mm. needs to happen in society are young people because to me they're the untapped kind of latent talent. And the ones who are probably also most likely to go for new ideas and to have a go and to um, be prepared to fail, you know, we lose that propensity as we get older, that preparedness because there's so much at stake, Um, whereas actually young people there's less at stake and there's more opportunity to kind of think about you know, experimentation. And of course, we need to give people permission to experiment anyway. That's the core, you know, what underpins all innovation is permission to experiment. Completely. You never get it right the first time, right? Yeah, absolutely. And and do you find, uh, have you noticed a shift in the time that you've been involved? Because uh, I mean, I'd almost say your whole life you've been involved in youth-related issues from your days as a social worker through Create, through um, right now to FYA. Have you noticed a shift in the willingness of, I guess, the um, the powers that be or the people that are in positions of authority to to be open to new actors and to be open to listening to young people? No. No. <laughs> Short answer. Yeah. Um, you know, I think, I think these things are hard one, but I think on the other side of the ledger, which is fantastic, is there are a heap more young people interested in being actors and there's a heap more young people that are bringing a whole diverse set of skills to that so it's almost like you know they're going to shake the the gates or they're going to kind of storm the barricade (laughs) one way or other um you know there's a shake-up going on and really smart organizations and really smart institutions and businesses and companies are already getting that and they started a few years ago you know they, they they let the young people or the young things kind of you know have the basement and then they worked out oh they're doing an amazing amount of stuff in the basement we better get them out of the basement and into the body of the organization and that's why you see you know these amazing uh, teams of young people who are running digital campaigns and you know driving change in organizations from you know but they need you need a sponsor it's like what we've always said about women you know you need you also need um people who can catalyze you know and I see in a way I see that as very much as been the role I have always had I've kind of catalyzed um, I've kind of sparked the environment or um, set on fire the environment <laughs> that <laughs> enables the you know people to come to the fore and to bring young people into the center whether it was you know, in Create where we were talking about, well, why don't young people who are in care have a say about what happens to them? You know, they, through no fault of their own, are brought into a system that is about to change their entire lives. They're going to move from a family into a kind of institutional arrangement. You know, there is just the most disruptive thing that could ever happen in your life and why don't they have a say and you know that was all about bringing them into the center so i'm into not just bringing people into the center so that they can have a voice or so that we can listen to them in a Mm. kind of patronizing way but actually to ensure that they're part of the design 
and leading the design. I want to know, like, where did this all start for you? Did you sort of come out of the womb marching to the social change drum? Like, how how did this sort of all <laughs> catalyze in you in, in your early childhood? Well, I always talk about kind of three things, you know, Number one, I had this very strong, you know, kind of family orientation towards sort of social justice. My parents helped set up Lifeline in Australia. So, you know, I was in the back of the car at seven or eight watching my dad or, you know, talk somebody down from jumping off the bridge or watching my parents go into a a domestic violence kind of dispute in full blown dispute while the police stood outside saying this is sort of family business and we have nothing to do with it and watch them come out with women and children you know that would come to our house because there was not really a system there was nothing like the kind of infrastructure that there is today and service system and so I grew up with you know all kinds of families in my house with kids and people hanging out, kind of getting on track, having an opportunity to think about just space, to think about how to get back on track. And I really learned from that that you could, if you had the right supports, you could actually reframe or come up with a different destiny. And that was just very powerful, had a massively powerful effect on me um, as a young child. And then I was always super entrepreneurial. So I was that you know, crazy little kid that set up a lemonade stand at the end of my driveway. Is it true you had a cane toad business? Did I read that correctly? And I had a cane toad business (laughs) with my three brothers, Cane Toads Inc., where we caught and sold toads. This is Queensland. This is Queensland, (laughs) right? You know, we caught and sold toads to the vet university. And then I was, um, from a really young age, I was kind of tagged in this kind of leadership role I've just was always told you can lead others which is very strange because I mostly led them astray particularly (laughs) when I was young but you know those three things coalesce this sort of really strong sort of sense of social justice and kind of what was going on in the world that the world was not always equal and then also this kind of entrepreneurial crazy streak that kind of ended up being channeled because of sort of social justice I guess into social entrepreneurship and wanting to make the world a better place and then this sort of third strand of leadership which just I guess you know propelled me and enabled me to be in a whole heap of leadership positions where I obviously learnt from lots and lots of other people from a really young age so uh, these threads have always and they've always stayed and they've always coalesced around social change for me. I love that. I read somewhere that you said, you know, I did. I grew up in an environment where you didn't sit around and have a glass of wine and endlessly discuss issues. When you saw something that needed to be done, you acted. And I liked that because I think, you know, quite often we do get almost suspended in the, the talk conversation and it sounds like from a really young age it was, you know, even what you were observing going on in your living room, your parents going and picking people up and saying, come take a bed, we'll find a place for you. It was always a very active role in in the social change piece you weren't a conversationalist you were a doer yeah there wasn't a lot of kind of yeah sitting around intellectualizing (laughs) what's wrong with the world I did that a lot later actually (laughs) (laughs) but I've always yeah that's right I think I was more um you know we were sort of I was always more as a sort of fire ready aim person um I think as I've got older I've become a ready aim fire (laughs) person which by the way I think is good but um 
Yeah, I think I was in a very, very practical and pragmatic family where you saw something that needed to be done, you kind of did it. It was part of your, it was part of being a kind of contributing, you know, citizen of the planet. You know, Mm. that was how it was. And so very, yeah, very action orientated or, and also focused on other, you know, there was, I think there was a great sense of if you are born into kind of middle class you know, Australia, you've got a lot of privileges and a lot of opportunities just by fault of that. And so, um, you know, the responsibility to share that is was powerfully, you know, inbuilt in me. And I think also my parents, you know, my dad actually helped Hewlett-Packard create the first kind of computer for the, you know, for the masses. Wow. And so I had a very curious um uh, very curious parents, like they're very strong on curiosity and creativity. And I think that really helps when you're thinking about change and working with people, you know, to change things. I reckon you're one of the most curious people I know and one of the most voracious learners I've ever come across. But I find it really interesting that... Apart maybe, from you. Probably. Oh, I don't know about that. <laughs> but, but I found it interesting that you, school really didn't work for you and neither really did university. That kind of traditional education system... Um, you and it butted heads, didn't you? Yeah, I am a I am a pinup for uh, the universal failure of education. <laughs> and I used to think, for, yeah, I used to think for a real long time that I failed education, but then I actually realised that education failed me, and I felt a lot better. Yeah, um, and you know, there's millions and millions and millions of people like me. Entrepreneurs are obviously very much in that group often, not always, but often. Um, But also, you know, one of of, um, my children is a person that has, you know, just didn't thrive in schooling. And I was able to say really early to him, and I'm so glad because nobody said it to me. I was able to say really early to him, you know, you have not failed education. Education has failed you. It has failed to capture your imagination, your time, your energy and your talent and that's why you're giving it a wide berth and that was very much what happened to me. I was completely disinterested in a kind of a way of learning that didn't suit me to a way of um, having to be kind of in a prison with prison guards (laughs) called school and teachers, Um, you know, and thank God that to some extent, not yet and not fast enough and not urgently enough, there's a different education system evolving and I definitely think I would have, I definitely would have thrived, you know, much better in the kind of new, the new education that's emerging and I'm assuming by what you're couching there, you're sort of talking about more of that transferable skill set, the experiential learning, uh, I guess the more personalised approach we're starting to take as opposed to the one-size-fits-all model that kind of typified the industrial economy. Yeah, so the future is very interesting of education. I mean, there are some things that are inevitable and definitely um, personalised learning is inevitable. Definitely um, this sort of many pathways is inevitable. Things that aren't inevitable yet, though, are shifts in kind of how teachers teach and what yeah. they teach. So we've got work to do. You know, the teacher of the future and my best teachers, and by the way, I've talked to so many millions of people now. Well, not millions, maybe 
hundreds of thousands though <laughs> about education and learning and their experience and the ones who always talk about the teacher or the one person who made a difference in their life was the person the teacher who was actually genuinely really a mentor mm. and a guide and a facilitator not a teacher and so the educator which is what I call teachers now the educator of the future is much more this person who's a guide a facilitator a broker a catalyzer a coach you know this is a whole new job description which is amazing by the way it's a fantastic job description I was going to ask you there because I think that idea of a mentor is really interesting and obviously you're someone I personally benefit from the mentoring of but I know you mentor so many young people I'm intrigued for I guess how you would characterize what it is to be a good mentor because I think that's really interesting it's quite a shift away from probably the traditional way we've archetyped what a teacher looks like yeah it really is and I mean I think the best mentoring that I've been involved in is when it's kind of two-way you know I always say anybody over 40 anywhere in the world should have a mentor under 30 like it's just it's the the way of the world like if you're not in touch with a generation or two that are coming through with very very different ideas and a very different experience of the world there's no way that you could actually even as an emerging leader or somebody who's engaged in the workforce or community over 40 really understand what that's going to be like so you know it's crazy not to have somebody who is actually your mentor who's younger so I consider people like you and a whole lot of people that say that I'm their mentor that you're my mentors and that really leads to the best mentoring is clearly two-way and collaborative and you know the best experiences I've had of mentor being a mentor which I'm really rubbish at because I'm very bad at anything that's formal (laughs) Um, but the informal kind of co- mentoring co-coaching you know collaborating all those things I learn you know hugely about and the other thing I think about mentors is you you don't know until way later often who's really influenced your life you know I often think now which I never thought 20 years ago um, about Anita Roddick because I met Anita Mm -hmm. Roddick who set up a shop when I was in my 20s Wow! and she was pre-Richard Branson so she was like that person way before him actually who was a real leader in how could you do business for purpose and I met her in my mid-20s I was really young I went to something I met her I got to talk to her Um, I had her book and literally from that event and that experience I changed my entire view and it actually was what led me to social entrepreneurship and thinking really differently that business and for purpose could come together and it was from that encounter now she didn't go on to be a mentor of mine but actually that encounter and talking to her and meeting with her literally changed my trajectory and changed my mindset actually And it was my mindset that then, it was the change in mindset that changed my trajectory. I love that because I think that's something we often overlook, isn't it? The role that the individual moment, the powerful experience, the one opportunity to meet or an encounter can actually have in in shaping things. I think sometimes we think it's a quantity game where it can be a quality of a single moment. I think encounters, if you um, are awake, (laughs) and as I said, I obviously wasn't very awake. It took me 20 years to realise, although I acted on it, by the way. I acted on it because I I was going to say, you must have been a fire. I'm the the fire-ready aim person. I acted on it, but I actually really now have thought a lot about 
where that was in my trajectory and what a critical catalyzing moment it was. So yeah, I'm, you know, I've spent less time having mentors than I've had encounters that have really transformed. And that's because I kind of, I take action on the thing that transforms me or makes me think differently. I take action on it and just try it. You know, I've always, I've never, never, ever been shy of trying something new or trying something different or learning something and putting it into, you know, action straight away. And there's a couple of things that that naturally makes me sort of want to ask. And one of them is, I guess I was wondering with someone who kind of didn't fit the mold of traditional education, how you did the learning to support the opportunities that you found yourself in, because you're in leadership positions, building organizations, doing amazing things from a really young age was a lot of that learning about, you know, throwing yourself in those forums and meetings and going and shadowing people who were doing it was a lot of it mentoring kind of how did you build your own life learning uh, support structure yeah well, it's a really good question as the kind of you know universally um you know di- diabolical education failure <laughs> um that i am I, uh, can I say that? You have an honorary doctorate at the University of Sydney. You are not a, by any means, like... I do, I do. And I it, isn't it... Dr Owen, actually, shouldn't I? Isn't it incredible that actually um, universities can do that? Because in doing that, what they say is we recognise your life of learning, mm. which I think is incredibly powerful. It's, you know, we recognise that you've done more than a thesis worth yes. of, of learning. And I, you know, I felt... Um, you know, it's there's a you know, it's a debate about those things and whether they're elite and whether you should accept them. But I actually thought, you know, this does recognise exactly that that there are many many pathways to, um, you know, to achieve different things in life. And I and I felt you know really honoured and privileged actually to achieve that I doctorate. Um, I think that I was as you say, and I was nothing like as organised as you because you've always been, one of the things I've admired about you is how you have so um, expertly kind of managed um, and and designed almost your learning journey and your engagement with people and being so curious and open and learnt, you know, so powerfully. And you went to university and you've still probably learnt way more since then than oh, anything that you learnt in school. Of, <laughs> a thousand, yeah, not even. Yeah, by, by a thousand. So I think that I was maybe a little more haphazard than you. I'm not as organised and disciplined, but I am, have always been a prolific reader I've been a prolific um, uh, grabber of any experience ever. I will always put my hand up and say yes to everything that I possibly could. Mm-hmm. Um, I would do as many things as possible that were also outside of my immediate experience. So I am, you know, I work and live and kind of breathe the kind of social change sector and the education sector, but I spend as much time as I can, you know, at least 25% of my time in other sectors learning, whether it's looking at design and architecture or whether it's looking at design thinking or whether it's looking at the health sector or the tech sector. I try to get beyond the boundaries of where I am as much as possible to bring new thinking and new learning. Um, I absolutely um, copy and steal everything. The case principle is writ large in my life. So um, 
I have no problem. I mean, I don't genuinely like literally plagiarise other people's things, but in terms of ideas and in terms of thinking, um, I don't hold to a precious view about information and knowledge. I think it's, for me, it's extremely practical and it's all about being real and it's all about what you can do with that in the real world and how you can apply it most effectively to get the greatest impact. So um, that's been really key. And then I've always just as I said, in a less disciplined way than you, but I've always surrounded myself or connected with um, the most interesting people that I can and learnt often just by working alongside people, actually. Just, you know, when I went to... Which was kind of comfortable, you know, it was like set up a movement... Uh, so I went, you know, from set up the movement out of your garage and get that set up around Australia in kind of eight and a half years, mm-hmm. nine years to then SVA in 2002. Um, and, you know, I was with investment bankers, you know, management consultants, ex-lawyers, corporate refugees, as I called them, <laughs> and which wasn't always, you know, looked upon kindly. But I, you know, I went and hung out with that group of people I'd never ever really had much to do with for eight and a half years and it was and I always talk about it as doing my MBA I did my MBA with those people I learned about business and investment and finance and management consulting live every day in every single way Um, and it was the most phenomenal learning and I am ridiculously grateful for the fact that I got my MBA um, at SBA I mean it was just phenomenal so To me, that's what it's about. It's about how do you learn live, how do you apply it live, um, and how do you learn to think differently. And that, to me, is about exposure to other experiences, people, opportunities, as much as possible, at least 25% of your time. And one of the, I love that idea of getting outside of your industry so intentionally and uh, it makes sense because I always hear you drawing on such a wide array of case studies or points of light or things that you've observed that there's sort of an interesting nugget beneath. Uh, one of the things I'm wondering about in that too is the role of sort of risk-taking because when you were talking about SBA there and being around these investment bankers, you'd, you'd come out of a, a good decade or so uh, um, in the social sector. This was probably a new vernacular. It was new terms, new structures. And I think often we shy away from putting ourselves in situations where we're the one that doesn't know or we're uncomfortable, like we can't just land on day one and know how to do everything. What role sort of risk-taking played in in your, not necessarily just career moves, but even the decisions you've made within your roles? Yeah, well, I think that one was a really good one. I mean, I was, I guess, really for six months, in fact, Michael Trail, who set up Social Ventures Australia, he was the founding CEO and he and I basically built SVA together. Mm-hmm. You know, we, I could not understand a word he said for six months. <laughs> I mean, genuinely, literally. And he, and also vice versa. Yeah. So we literally walked around in a fog for six months saying, what are you talking about? <laughs> but, you know, the strength of this is the strength of relationships first, right? So yeah. if you trust, respect, like, believe people, then you can forge all kinds of new paths and all kinds of new opportunities and you can cross many, many, many bridges. And SVA in itself became this place where many people out of many sectors have come 
gone through SBA and then gone on into the not-for-profit or social change sectors or set up their own thing and it became this kind of this bridge and so we were the live yin and yang of that living that out what does it look like when sectors or industries and in this case the kind of social change not-for-profit sector meets business sector it was literally a life experiment we we could not understand each other and so so the great thing was that we were able to talk about that and also joke about it and still to to this day and then we we're both though so open to learning, like we desperately wanted to learn from the other what they knew and to bring that to bear in the organisation and in the work of the organisation. And, you know, the organisation and the work was all the better for it. It was all the better for us getting out of our comfort zone, putting on the L plates. You know, Michael used to always say, I, he used to always say, and I would say back, you know, we know about each other's industries. What we know about it is like the size of the back of a postage stamp, <laughs> you know, when we started. And by the end, you know, we had deep knowledge and expertise, not enough, still learning, um, but a lot more about each other and you know it took me into places where I would never have been and equally with Michael so you know powerful powerful learning by just stepping kind of off the cliff um it was great that we could do that together and I'm a huge um I'd always been alone kind of ranger mm-hmm. until then. Um, I've always built strong teams and, and that was the first time that I'd really genuinely collaborated with somebody you know in that kind of role and it was um it was amazing I found it challenging but also incredibly enriching to have a co-collaborator through that through that journey um it was very you know it was actually one of the most powerful experiences that i've ever had that's amazing and i think the communication piece you're touching on goes to the heart of so much of the challenge of where we're at right now too is sort of the the echo chambers or the siloed thinking and i remember you teaching me about this when i was um chairing the youth summit for the g20 when you were saying okay you've got to be thinking in this context it was about what room you're going into and who's your audience and how do you need to talk to them in their language so they can understand you and in other contexts it's about how do we find the the shared language where we can actually progress this together. But I think that that piece, and I don't know whether it was something that was honed early in your sort of youth affairs council politics days, but that piece around understanding how we talk and how we reach an audience is so, so important. Yeah, I think you're so right. I mean, it's been reinforced in every single role I've been in. And I must admit, it also sits comfortably with me at one point, because at one level, it's like, yes, you've got to learn how to play the game in order to get into the game which is fine, but then at a certain point it becomes um, actually self-defeating. And this is back to the very beginning of this conversation, which is, you know, if you want to change the actors or if you want to change the the system or transform something, you need to change the actors. And so to the extent that we buy into the current game and say, okay, I'll just learn how to play that really expertly is certainly something that, you know, I've had to do it many, many, many times of my life. But I also have always, always, always brought in behind that the kind of the new actors and the new thinkers and the new designers with new ideas and tried to bring them in as I was paving the way. And that's why I think that catalyzing role is really important. Sometimes some people need to be a bridge between whether it's generations or between ideas or between change, institutional change. You know, that's why when the work that we do a lot at FIA really see that institutions are needing to change, all institutions. I think 
there's nobody who doesn't think the case that anymore. But what you have to do to really do that is find the innovators within mm. that current institution and then link them with entrepreneurs from outside. And when you can bring entrepreneurs and new thinking to innovators or intrapreneurs inside organisations, then you can start to really transform. And I think that will be the best work that we do in the next decade as we're transforming institutions like education or any number of them, health and transport will be how do the entrepreneurs get unleashed to work with the entrepreneurs from the outside and start to build the new. I love that. I heard a quote on Friday that said, we can't demand diversity and then expect conformity from it. And I thought, oh, there's a lot to sit with in that because I think that's a little bit of the trap that we've been in in sort of the entrepreneurial fad or the innovation and disruption fad of the last couple of years anyway is sort of we we think we can uh, just bring in the different type of thinkers, put them in the business as usual, and that's going to magically flourish and create this level of, you know, incredible value-adding activity or the entirely new uh, product or service or whatever it might be. Um, and I think what you're sort of touching on there is we need a different structure to support that because you can't just expect diverse thinking. As you said, we get to a tipping point where, yes, they've got to play a certain way to be able to come into the game, but then we deny part of its value and contribution if it has to conform entirely. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I mean, I think there's, there, you know, history, and I mean recent history, is is scattered with real failures in that. And that's fine if we learn from them and maybe they're experiments and not failures. But, you know, for whenever, you know, the the bright young things were given the basement to go and all the sand pit to go and innovate, everybody just got really resentful, everybody else in the organisation. You know, that, that was one model. And that another model was bring in the bright young things from outside and it, not necessarily young, just the bright things from outside and get them to kind of shake things up or, you know, the management consultants and that doesn't always work. So we've tried every different way of this and I actually think the next iteration of all of that is this um, you you have to enable the existing workforce but you have to also juice it up. You've got to bring the new thinking and ideas and so that the clever and the really smart people in this will be able to actually bridge these two groups and get them working together and collaborating. Um, and then you give them real things to do, you know, real work, real change, real transformation. And I think education is a brilliant example. There's a lot of people give education a really hard time, particularly teachers, whereas for me, I actually think teachers are the sponsors and champions of the new. And mm. the quicker and faster that we enable and inspire and equip them with the new tools and new thinking and new ways and new opportunities to educate and to think about the purpose and the role of education and learning and to rethink the learner in the centre of that and to actually bring the learner into the centre of that, then we'll create a new system. But it would be it's actually dangerous for us to keep thinking that because there's this adage in entrepreneurship, as you well know, which is build the thing on the outside and let it infiltrate. Well, I've seen millions of things built on the outside that never infiltrated yeah. the system. And so I genuinely believe that you've got to make the people in the existing system, the innovators in the existing system, the champions and the sponsors of the change, and then you bring to them and you enable them to bring in the new and new ideas, which are represented in ideas or tools or could be people. Um, but, you know, teachers are 
250,000 of them in Australia and millions of them around the world, they must be the sponsors of the new, of new learning. Yeah. And I think that goes back to the importance of what you talked about when you were discussing Michael Trail and your relationship, that the importance of collaborations and new partnerships and opening up dialogue and, and sponsoring and supporting new bits of activity. Um, I'm intrigued to tap it maybe into that a little bit more and, and ask what you learned about effective collaborations from your time working with Michael. I know you said it was hard and it was easy and it was all things at different times. What did you learn about how good collaboration functions or what the foundations are for that? Yeah, well, I think, you know, I think it happens on multiple levels, right? So at the kind of personal level, um, as I said, I always come back to this trust, like, respect, believe. You know, I think that is just the fundamental of kind of personal interactions and ability to collaborate. If you don't trust, like, respect and believe, another person is going to be very, very hard to collaborate with them just as co-collaborators in whatever context. So that's when it breaks down to individuals. And then I think the work that I've done through SBA and then since then at FYA around building alliances and collaborations, they're really hard. And the only ones that have really worked are where the common goal and the common vision has been so clear as in crystal clear in fact it's it's irrefutable that that's the right common goal or common vision and then you can bring people around that but that often people jump into kind of the doing and the activity the kind of aim you know the kind of fire ready aim thing Mm -hmm. they jump into that and then they come undone because it was like what was the aim again why are we doing this and if and if that isn't central if purpose and common vision is not central then it's very 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 hard to build collaborations and the other thing which you know as well from the g20 work is that um less is more in a way like we we have to put trainer wheels on for these collaborations. And so doing one thing really well together is better than trying to do 10 things kind of badly. And so you break down collaboration, you start easily achieved that sort of time bound and you can see the horizon of where you could achieve something and then you build on that and that incrementally you build up and it's like a muscle it's like a risk muscle and an entrepreneurial muscle you build up that muscle um, and then you get practiced and you get eventually hopefully you get mastery you know over a long time in how you build these new collaborations and new ways of working but we all need to me it's a really fundamental 21st century kind of skill. You know, if problem solving is going to be the number one thing in critical thinking, well, core to collaborations often is actually problem solving. Mm. You know, how are we going to solve into a challenge, an opportunity, an issue together? Um, that's a core capability now. Completely. I wanted to ask, because a lot of the, your work with FYA is, is talking, is looking forward 10 years, 20 years, depending on, on what particular research paper we're talking about, and trying to give us more of a, an accurate picture as to where it is we're heading and what we need to be getting ready for now. And I wanted to ask you with regards, I guess, particularly to young people and, and where the world's heading from their lens of a, a young person perhaps looking out at the world now. What's the trend that gives you the most hope or optimism? Or what are you seeing in the research that gives you hope and optimism? And what is it that you worry about for this next generation? Mm. Well, what gives me optimism actually is young people themselves. So I feel like um, 
they have the kind of hearts and minds and the smarts actually to step into a lot of the challenges, whether they're kind of local or global. And, you know, some people are more um, likely to act in a kind of a local environment in their own community, which is fantastic. And some people are more likely to kind of think about things at a macro level. It's fantastic. We need everything at either end and all in between. Um, I think what I think the challenges are, what I'm more worried about is how quickly, you know, to kind of other parts of this conversation that we've had, how quickly we'll get young people into kind of the design thinking space and to help in the co-design of what those new systems or the new things that we need to do are. And then obviously a lot of our research takes us back into education. So what are we doing in school and are we doing it fast enough to ensure that this very different kind of learning that is inquiry-based, that is about capabilities and skills and not about subjects, um, that is about um, understanding how you do develop and assess things very differently. You know, we've we've resoundedly heard from young people around the world that they want skills, not scores. And even at the other end, at the demand side from employers, they're much less interested in scores now and they're much more interested in skills. So somehow education needs to get its head around the fact that the subject and the discipline is done, that there are many ways of teaching history that are, you know, or maths or economics or science that are actually very, very inquiry-based and are very focused yeah. on solving problems that you can assess you can actually assess creativity and problem solving um, that, you know, if you think about different ways of learning because then you can assess how people do do those things live. Um, but I think students are already there and this is why we're in this very difficult position. You know, I think when I was at school, you know, there's high levels of compliance, except for people like me. I was the outlier. Today, you know, there are 70,000 year 12s in New South Wales alone oh, wow. who won't finish height, won't do year 12. They've already dropped out. They've already bailed. And this isn't, you know, like a outlier. This That's a big number. Yes. And that's because for them it's not making sense and it doesn't make sense for what they think the future and their future in the world looks like right through to just pure unadulterated boredom because we haven't flipped the classroom yet. You know, you can already learn almost anything that you need from a knowledge base off YouTube. I mean, there are five billion YouTube clips watched every day around the world. So the flipped classroom says you can go and learn, you can get your knowledge from Dr. Google all the way through to YouTube and everywhere in between. And what you come to school for is to talk about that and to understand what it means from an ethical, from a from a um, learning, from a um, applied, like real life experience. You know, what do all these things mean and how do they, how are they what's the context in which these things that you have learned what's their context in the world and this is a very different kind of learning it is why it's called the flipped classroom mm. um, and that's why the teacher role is is profoundly different because the teacher's role is to elicit and to provoke and to you know catalyze and to coach and to mentor and to facilitate learning and when you're looking for points of light to kind of guide the way on on how we move towards that flipped classroom, where in the world do you look? Where do you see examples of some of this being done? Mm. 
Well, you know, number one is that there are points of light. So that's a massive challenge. This is not a universally accepted, except in some places like Finland, where they've already started to transform education, have been doing so for a while. Um, There are different drivers, right? So Singapore 50 years ago said we need to have a knowledge society. We have got no natural resources. So our people, our talent will be our number one natural resource. And so we will invest in the education learning to become some of the best knowledge workers in the world. And they did, and it was hugely successful. And now Singapore itself is saying we need to go on a journey because we have these incredible knowledge workers, but actually they're not as creative and agile as we might have thought that they need to be for the 21st century. So they're on another 50-year journey, hopefully. Hong Kong decided Hong Kong had a fantastic conversation with the entire population about what do we need and what do we want to what do we want from education in our country in the context of the future of the country and then they set about designing the education system against that amazing Finland said actually you know having knowledge and learning and thinking creativity and being a problem solver and being a critical thinker is very, very important. So we're going to focus a lot on how we bring that into the classroom. And by the way, we're going to privilege our teachers. They're going to be some of the best paid people in our society. They're going to be very, very important because they're the, you know, people who are, again, the catalyzers of of new learning. Um, British Columbia and Canada have had a really good crack at actually bringing really diverse um, education and learning to play from First Nations engagement in education through to really, really diverse populations. And they've made that a centrepiece, actually, of their education system is how is it diverse and how does it reflect our First Nations um, people all the way through to um, newcomers to our country. So there are systems around the world that have done an amazing job and even parts of America, you know, we, we often think of America as a really failed education system, but there are points of light in the US in different jurisdictions where they've had collective impact models where they've um, really supported schools to go beyond school and start connecting with the entire ecosystem of a community. Mm. So to me, it seems that you either decide that education is about talent and talent development and your future workforce, or you decide that um, education is, you know, the absolute fundamental anchor to the future prosperity and economic um, prosperity of a country, or you decide that because the world and we are in a global environment now that actually education is the lever. It's it's the thing that can change and transform a life, whether it's a young girl in you know Bangladesh or a young person in in Central Africa. That it is, you know, for in that context, the absolute lever that transforms people's lives and gives them a chance to get onto kind of onto, as we would say into Australia, onto the paddock, (laughs) you know, that whatever the reason is, it is so fundamental Mm. um, and it is such a, it is so important that it should be exercising our minds. It should be front and centre in every strategy around a vision or a future for a, a country, but also an individual. And that's what's amazing about education. It traverses the individual and their path and their aspirations and unlocking their full potential through to transforming nations. Yeah. And I love what you say there about how important it is we've got that 
that really clear understanding of just how extraordinarily powerful the purpose of education done well is because we can't ever lose sight of that. And we were part of a conversation last night where one of the points that was made, and this was regarding women's empowerment in the context of last night, was sort of if, if we kind of just almost without exception focus on the problem. And that's why I think it's so great so often when I hear you talk that you're continually calling out points of light and examples of where this is already starting to happen. Because if we just focus on the problem, it's almost like we can just, you know, be stuck bogged in the mud, spinning our tyres and exerting an enormous amount of energy but not actually moving forward. Um, and I think that ability to, to acknowledge the problem without a question and, and try and, uh, you know, take apart its complexity and understand where we can best push for impact. But at the same time, make sure that we've got a bit of optimism and positivity in a few examples that we're keeping in the field of view. Yeah, I really, I really think so. And, I, you know, one of the things I got from the session that we're at last night, which was, as you say, about women and girls empowerment, was this idea that um, if you just present kind of the negative data and in this case we were talking about domestic violence and one in four women Mm. you know will be affected by domestic violence you then you know the brain science research now says that actually that creates a norm which is the exact diametrical opposite intention of actually Mm. putting that data out there and so this you're doing yourself aren't you Anyways. Yeah, it's it's the it's the it's so counterproductive, but it's also kind of counterintuitive because you think if you talk about the data and the and you know data is very powerful and evidence is very powerful, um, it can have a counter effect. And so we have to think very carefully about what it is that is the arc of this narrative. And I think in our work, we started with a narrative two or three years ago that said we want to think about what's happening to young people in the new work order. We want to understand what is going to happen in the future of work and what will be required of them. And we want to start a national and drive a national conversation. And kind of 26 million people later um, who have been engaged with our research, you know, we've definitely been part of driving a new conversation. And that's step one. But step two after that is, well, what needs to change and what's the order of change and who needs to be involved in the change? And I think that's where we're up to in the conversation. And part of it is changing some people's way of thinking about things and that's why you know our last report that said two things number one stop playing Russian roulette with jobs you know what's going to be in what's going to be out every job's going to be disrupted stop thinking about you know which skills are better or not you know we know that transferable skills that used to be called soft skills or nice to haves and now the new hard skills so things that you can take from job to job will actually be most beneficial for people in the future and then thirdly that you know the flexible new world of work where you're not spending 37 years at one job and grabbing a gold pen and you know going home um, means that we think really differently about how you navigate and how you manage your career so these things are fundamentally different and so you can scare people with that story or you can actually empower people by having them involved in the story and in the conversation and in the design of how do you think about a life of learning how do you think about um, becoming a self-learner and a self-organiser and also being more entrepreneurial, you know, and all these things, which is what I love, all of these things can be taught. None of yeah. these things are magic. You do oh, not need Harry Potter, you know, to come and wave <laughs> a wand. 
And that means the onus is on the rest of us to ensure that future generations are taught these new skills and capabilities. And I guess people well and truly already in their careers too, who will just as importantly need to be thinking about lifelong learning and on the job building skills and, and finding ways to support uh, the learning they've already done with this continual reskilling. Yeah, I agree. And I think this is why it's so important, right? Our, the, the, the research that we have says that upskilling or retraining will be part of um, your life. So the days are gone when the pretty packaged, boxed up employee arrived on your doorstep, like dropped by the stork called university. <laughs> um, and you were, and they just, you know, they just molded in and did everything that was right to do in the company. The pace of change means somebody who's got a three year university it, degree, it's almost redundant unless it's at a highly technical um, degree. It's almost redundant by the time they get into the workforce. And so now there's a new contract. And the contract is the employer and the employee are on a journey of learning together. And so we can we can bust that myth that like, why aren't we getting the people that we want? Well, the pace of change and the skills that are required are changing so rapidly that it's going to be on the job. In fact, 30% of your time is going to be spent learning on the job, in the mm. job. So, you know, we need a new contract. And also that's a contract, by the way, with educational institutions who need to stop, again, just sort of bounding learning by you finished and you graduate and you go. The smart education institutions of the future will really want you as a learning partner for life yeah. and they will start to engage very differently with you around your learning and so, you know, any institution that's on the front foot is already thinking about what that means. And employers who are on the front foot and who want to retain staff are now really thinking about, well, this is a learning as well as a working place. I want to ask a completely different question and it's one more about how I guess you've you've managed yourself and managed your energy levels and your mindset over the course of your career because picking something like social change, social entrepreneurship as your life's work is, uh, you know, a long project. You're not in a transactional game where you're getting quick wins every quarter and things like that. A lot of what you're working at is um, a long build to get really significant but often, you know, sometimes a 1%, a 2% shift or whatever it might be, um, that I'm intrigued, I guess, to ask how it is you've stayed energised, you've kept yourself inspired when sometimes you face difficult moments, things aren't going as easily or as well as you might like, or you just get a little bit overwhelmed by all the talk about how big the problems still are and how much of a distance we've still got to go. How have you managed that part of your career? Yeah, um... I, I'm super impatient is a problem. I <laughs> <laughs> so I have a strong sense of urgency, um, which is, you know, flies in the face of every single thing that I've ever heard, ever read, and every person I've ever spoken to who has always said, you know, whether it was, you know, I heard the Atlassian guy speaking recently mm. and, you know, they were like, yeah, it's been a 10-year journey. And I'm like, what? <laughs> what do you mean it's been 10 years? Everybody, whether it's the garage band that's an overnight success that wins the ARIA award who says, well, actually, we've been playing pubs for 10 years, or whether it's the Atlassian guys who said, yeah, we were in a basement and then, you know, in a small office and, it's been a 10 years like there's nobody that I've heard in any kind of either entrepreneurial or any other kind of endeavor or 
let alone social change, um, that is less than 10 years. And so it's, and it sounds strange to say because we are in such a fast-paced environment and people don't even make strategic plans for more than, you know, one to three years now. So it's, it's a kind of an interesting place, right, that it still takes a long time to change things and to move the dial Mm -hmm. and you've got to have a 10-year commitment. And now, you know, I very much won't even enter into new partnerships or arrangements really about big social change um, actions unless I can think that we could have 10 years worth of resources or support to actually make it happen. I don't think it, I think it's the waste actually of time and effort and often public money. So I've got much pointier around that idea of how much time, even though I sit personally with an incredible sense of impatience and urgency, you know, my, you know, my line is we've got four and a half seconds on the planet. You need to make it count. Mm. And I genuinely believe that because in the history of time, it is about that. Um, But the other thing that I think is in my favor um, is that I am a, I'm a ridiculous optimist. I mean, I genuinely believe that we can and that we and that we can and we want to do better. I always believe that people, even when it may not look like they are, that they are doing the best they can Mm -hmm. with what they have and with which might be with what they have in terms of information or opportunity or um, kind of their context or their worldview. Um, And I'm also a huge believer in the power of stories, which I've come to, you know, much later I think I was also very pragmatic I'm very pragmatic and I think that's the other thing that enables me to keep going because I'm a pragmatic realist but I'm also an opportunist and an optimist so <laughs> it's a lot weird... in that that mix yeah. I know it's a really weird mix and yeah. um but you know story is a very powerful thing you know we have a story of our lived experience which tells us about ourselves we have the story of our context our family or our community which kind of shapes our worldview and then we also have the story of others or of things that we aspire to which kind of shape our vision and a vision of the future and I always believe those three things are at play all the time that behind everything that we're doing we have our kind of lived experience which drives us we have our context which gives us our worldview and then we have our kind of vision for a future whether it's our own personal or for our community or for the planet and those things sit really you know, all those things together sit really well with me. And I think story, because I work with incredibly inspiring people who come from all kinds of diverse backgrounds and contexts and have all kinds of worldviews, um, you know, those things, optimism and urgency have really driven me and keep me as well as, and I have to say this, <laughs> working with young people my entire life, Yeah, I genuinely think that I am you know, the youngest old person around. Like it, And people say to me all the time who come and work or engage at FYA, they say, oh, after, afterwards they always say, that was so incredible. I mean, I was so inspired by these younger people and what they're thinking about and how they're thinking and how they're approaching problems. And, wow, I feel refreshed. And, mm. and I just say, yeah, how awesome it is that I've had my entire life <laughs> yeah. working as, young, as a young person and then through age aging, you know, as an older person um, with young people, I've just, it's such a gift. I mean, I've been so gifted and so privileged. 
and young people for that matter, are so gifted and privileged. We couldn't have anyone waving the flag better for today's generation of young people than you. So we're very, very lucky in that regard. I wanted to ask two quick questions before we finish up. Um, thank you so much for making the time to, to have a chat. I really appreciate it. I, I wanted, I guess, to firstly to ask you, for others who are thinking, like they maybe got an idea on the back burner, it might be for a social cause they want to get in, involved with or um, an idea for how they might be able to make an impact in the world. What's your best advice as to how to take a first step? What, what should they do? Um, well, there's three things that I very quickly always talk about. The number one is only do things that you're passionate about. Um, and that's fine. You're, they may change over your life. That's fine. But I think passion is very, very important. But if you're going to do something that is not your own personal lived experience that you're going to get passionate about, then you need to do what my late, what the late Pamela Hardigan and one of my great friends and mentors said, which is apprentice the problem. You need to go and find out about it. You need to go and talk to people who've had the lived experience and work with them and alongside them. Um, the world is scattered with, you know, to be honest, you know, great talented university students, you know, going to Africa to help. Um, you know, international development started off on the wrong footing, actually, because people turned up to help. Um, and the, what they did was entrench further the disadvantage. So mm. you've got to apprentice the problem. You've got to know a lot about it. You've got to put the L plates on and learn before you start to try and do something about the thing you're passionate about. That's number one. Number two is surround yourself really quickly with others. Um, your idea, 20 other people might be doing, go find them. Um, I think that we're in a time and place where it's not enough to just have a great idea and set something up for the sake of it because you yeah. personally have a passion about it. Um, there are lots of people doing similar things and it's one of the issues that, you know, concerns me about the spread of resources, time, energy and talent. Um, I'd rather see people joining up their ideas and joining forces and joining the talent actually to put to a problem, an issue or challenge that you're trying to address. So find your co-collaborators early. Um, and then the last thing I would say is um, think about things systemically. Um, it's very easy to say, you know, I'm really concerned about homelessness and so I'm going to give homeless people, you know, a better pillow to sleep with and how what you're doing going to help address that now there's nothing wrong with obviously helping people who are in dire need and need help there and then for whatever reason you know my parents helped do that they help people you know who needed something there and then but what actually changes the trajectory for people is actually the systemic change that needs to happen that's beyond just their personal experience. And so we always encourage our entrepreneurs at FYA to, think, to talk to experts about what's the systemic change around this issue that needs to happen and how can we be part of that. Love that advice. And then for those who are listening, what's, what's the call to action you'd like to leave them with? Cool. Um, well, my call to action is very much a call to action around us in Australia. You know, we are still on the planet one of the richest, most privileged. Yes, there are absolute areas where we need to really address inequality, but we are wealthy, healthy, 
happy by, you know, any measure globally, we're at the top of the list or many lists. Um, And to me, what I've always thought is that with that comes enormous responsibility and enormous opportunity. You know, how will we decide to contribute in the 21st century to a global landscape, to a very mobile population, to a changing work environment, to huge opportunities with technology, enhancing, enabling, you know, challenging ways of doing things. How is Australia, how do we step up? How do we get above and beyond ourselves and our own issues, the chips on our shoulders, our tall poppy syndrome, to be more than just known as the sporting you know, nation that punches above its weight, um, how will we genuinely decide that we're going to contribute to the global, the global challenges and they are global now and how will we unleash a generation, how will every single person decide to unleash another piece of talent coming up behind them um, into our community but also onto the, onto the world stage to, you know, take up the opportunity to be part of, humanity 2.0 such good food for thought to finish on jan thank you so so much for making the time to share so generously of your experience and your insights i love all the many and varied directions this conversation uh, went in and i could go for hours <laughs> but i'm mindful <laughs> of uh, your time and i i'm truly truly grateful and i can say this at a personal level as well i think of on behalf of the young people that you champion every day thank you so much Uh, for what you do and for the way that you continually uh, seek to advocate, support, encourage and and give voice uh, to people who we still don't have enough representation uh, of within Australian society and arguably within the global construct as well. Thanks for listening. I hope you feel inspired and have some practical ideas for how you can go and fuel the difference you want to see in your life, organisation or community. If that's a yes, please take a moment to send us feedback, shoot me a tweet at Holly Ransom, leave a review for this coffee pod, or head to www.coffeepodswithholly.com and send in your questions and suggestions for future coffee pods. But for now, until our next coffee break, I've been Holly Ransom. Thanks for fueling your difference with me.